we actually had an attorney refer us somebody who did rob a bank and tried to claim they were multiple personality and he was found guilty because it turned out all the personalities knew about the robbery <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Of course, none of us really know where we are in time because none of us can see the edges of this container or, for that matter, even determine whether or not this spatial metaphor for time makes any kind of sense. Thinking of time as a spatial dimension might even be considered a kind of trance state that we've been in now for over a hundred years. But it's the nature of trance states that you don't notice that you're in one, which is what makes this conversation with Dr. Norman Katz, aka Dr. Blue, a lifelong practitioner of hypnotherapy, such a resonant and I hope also practically useful wake-up call for all of us. You see, hypnosis is a misnomer, as Dr. Blue will explain later in this episode, because we are all constantly embedded in a matryoshka doll of layered trances. And learning one's own mind is to invite the opportunity for what Tim Leary and John Lilly called metaprogramming, the chance to choose your own trance. Frankly, we'll probably never find our way to the top of this inception baklava, but we can certainly have better, more fulfilling lives by waking up in the dream itself and selecting better dreams. But before we dive in, I just want to take a quick moment to thank Cody Kuyak and Kevin Walnut for purchasing my music at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com. It's a rare and precious thing to get an email letting me know that someone has paid as if it were like 2006 or something. So I'm choosing to celebrate those two fine people as well as the 140 Patreon supporters in the Future Fossils community. I apologize for driving this home as I'm sure regular podcast listeners know this refrain quite well. But this show is entirely supported by recurring listener donations. It is your gratitude and your show of support that keeps this show free from advertising and the mundane concerns of subsistence and allows us to debark into the imagination and speculative philosophical realms where we thrive here on Future Fossils. So if you feel like your life has been improved by this show, if you feel like you've, you've learned something empowering, a fresh, new perspective on the world, I hope you'll consider joining that group over at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where incidentally, you can avail yourself to a copious number of rewards. Just my way of thanking you for thanking me in this sort of bootstrapping virtuous circle. 
And if you feel spiritually impoverished, incapable of generosity, well, listen to this episode with Dr. Blue and tell me that you aren't simply trapped in some toxic and self-destructive limiting script that's preventing you from savoring the juicy berry that is your life. I find my friendship with Dr. Blue to be a bounteous source of regular reminders that my mind is not a rail car on a fixed path, but an all-terrain vehicle exploring great wildernesses and having awesome adventures. So I hope the same for you. Enjoy this and stay tuned for another awesome conversation next week. You, you said your first job was. My first job in the hypnosis field was at the Dr. Peter Phillips Parapsychology Lab, the McDonnell Douglas Lab at Washington University in St. Louis, and I was to regress people who claimed they'd been abducted by flying saucers back to the saucers so they could draw pictures of the instrumentation and the beings in the saucers. <laughs> so was this was this done with? the conceit that they were offering something legitimate or was it a scientific experiment to see if their stories lined up or what was it um it was truly an investigative research study there was no hypothesis uh and my impression of most of the people that i worked with was they were seriously unstable and had other reasons that they needed to believe they had been abducted by flying saucers some of them of course may have been abducted by flying saucers but the general impression was that these were people who had an excellent fantasy life so they didn't you you didn't get a a compelling through line uh no no, no. the drawings were very different and somewhat stereotypical but we also hypnotized people to increase their creativity to do uh, paranormal skills like remote viewing and using uh, Dr. Phillips was a physicist and we used radioactive decay to have a completely unpredictable stimulus of right versus left decay and we found people who could predict things that they shouldn't have been able to know (laughs) and that was fairly robust and stable was that also in St. Louis? yes, Washington University huh yeah so did those things prepare you for your own later direct experiences of UFOs and time bending? <laughs> um, not really. <laughs> well, dude, I, first of all, I, I had to frame this by saying that I've known you for almost a decade and I've learned a lot from you in that time. And you've come up on the show uh, uh, numerous times, uh, including the conversation I had with John David Ebert, Michael Aaron Kamins, and Ikea Sojun 
uh, in Santa Fe last year, which was like 104 and 105. And, you know, I, I don't feel that I was doing any service to your stories that I tried to retell on that show. So I'm really glad that... It's nice to be here with you, Michael. Thank you. Yes. So let's start with... You're a clinical psychologist. You have this lengthy and estimable career. These are stories that maybe I don't even know. Like, where did you get it? How did you get into this? Well, like, I was, in, I, I was uh, undergraduate at the University of Chicago and majoring in psychology and English. And I was walking through the psych department one day and I heard a German voice going, and now he needs a subject for a psychology experiment. So I opened the door and waved and said, I'm a psychology student, I'll do it. And it turned out to be Erica Fromm, who was the professor who was the dean of American hypnoanalysis. And she assigned me to work with a student of hers named Lyle Spencer III, who was the son of the president of IBM. And he got to know me and invited me to do some training with him. And it turned out he had a farm up in Wisconsin that had been declared some kind of a natural wonder. And he was taking students up there um, and giving them high doses of LSD because he had just come from running all of Leary's research at Harvard for four years. And so he was very experienced and he'd been following Fritz Perls all around the country to getting a lot of expensive training. So we were trained to do Gestalt therapy on very high doses of pure Sandoz research acid. So wait, you, the therapist, were on... Were, were right. Yeah, okay. All right. And this is, this is what, what year is this? Uh, 19, 60, 1968, yeah, yeah, 69. Yeah. And so basically we learned to take ourselves apart and put ourselves back together. And, and later on, um, I taught at Esalen with Stan Groff, who wrote um, the book uh, Beyond the Brain, which was a 25-year study of LSD research with... Um, high doses of acid in the Maryland Research Institute and his assistant who was a psychiatrist from Rome named Franco DeLeo who I met in a car that blew up on the San Francisco freeway <laughs> uh, he and I became friends and when they wouldn't let Groff use LSD anymore for personality research they started using pranayama yoga or deep hyperventilation breathing techniques and i was the first person that got trained outside their program and we combined hypnosis and yoga and deep breathing at esalen and we were doing like in two hours what was taking people five or six hours to do in the deep breathing workshops because we could focus the intent of the breathing very much more effectively and efficiently and in fact we we ended up teaching at Esalen for 12 years doing this and uh, we actually ended up leaving because the staff were deserting their positions to come to our workshop <laughs> it was so magical and so much incredible stuff was happening so you almost you almost killed Esalen with awesome, right? <laughs> right. Wait, yeah. I want to I want to loop back because yeah, it's just like I, I feel like talking to you is often like getting pelted with a machine like a, a Gatling paint gun of just like awesome little stories, and each paintball is an entire painting, and it's like oh, okay. it's somewhat disorienting, frankly, but in a, a delightful way. 
so you were doing LSD gestalt therapy. Right. Uh, were you, I, I want to hear more about that. And I want to hear that the path from that into explorations of clinical hypnotherapy and that kind of stuff. Yeah. We, um, we were doing LSD both as the patient and as the therapist simultaneously. So it was quite, quite interesting. And we were working with the traditional Gestalt concepts of top dog, underdog, and uh, confronting your field of Gestalts and taking ourselves apart and putting ourselves back together. But uh, I was an intern at Harvard Medical School Child Clinics and one day I went to a hypnosis conference that was there and I drank a lot of coffee and I had to get rid of the coffee so I went into the bathroom and in the bathroom there was this psychiatrist yelling, jumping up and down, tearing science research reports and flushing them and screaming and having a temper tantrum. Now this was the most interesting thing I'd ever seen at a scientific conference of psychologists or psychiatrists. So I asked him who he was and what he was doing and he said, that's all Ted Barber's research is good for, toilet paper. And I said, well, who's Ted Barber? And he said, he's a hypnosis researcher who I hate. So I thought, whoever Ted Barber is sounds pretty interesting. So he turned out to be the world's leading hypnosis researcher, and he was at Harvard. So I introduced myself, and I ended up working with him for four years, and we developed a learning theory model of hypnosis. He uh, the term hypnosis is actually a scientific uh, anomaly, bad 19th century science linguistics. That Hypnosis was named after a servant of in- William Braid, an English physician who was trying to create a mesmeric crisis, which was the model of people would get very excited and then have a crisis when they were hypnotized because the theory was animal magnetism. But um, Braid's servant, Victor, fell asleep instead of having a crisis. So he coined this term hypnosis, which is based on the Greek god of sleep, hypnos. And so then for a 100 years, going to sleep was the model of hypnosis. You were supposed to get super relaxed and go to sleep. And it turned out that no study ever verified there was a particular brain state of hypnosis. There still is no study that verifies that hypnosis is a particular brain state or neurological constellation. But when we look at the behavioral research on hypnosis, it actually makes total sense because hypnosis is not a particular brain state. It turns out to be a skill and an aptitude that's based on combining attention and fantasy and a predilection for dissociation. And we learned this at at Dr. Barber's lab at Harvard and my lab at University of New Mexico by interviewing really good subjects and saying, well, what do you do when you get rid of pain? And what do you do when you think you're floating in the air? And it turned out they had very specific imagination strategies for doing that. It wasn't a susceptibility uh, like the Stanford hypnosis scales called themselves. It was a skill, and it turned out that most of the people that were able to do these things uh, had imaginary playmates when they were children, hmm. or they were abused as children and learned to tune out and dissociate. So we developed a skill training program for 
learning to be a good hypnotic subject rather than being tricked into being a good <laughs> hypnotic subject. And we were able to raise the bell curve from a from a normal bell-shaped curve to where there were almost no people who couldn't respond to hypnosis. And we doubled the amount of people who were like virtuosos at it. And then we started applying it to treating depression and anxiety very successful and then i met milton erickson <laughs> okay so before we before we get to milton erickson i i want so at this point you've got a model right that is now this is the model we were talking about before we started recording right that you right. that your your research-based uh approach to this has come up with a completely different view on what's actually happening in the brain and what that means in terms of like the nature of consciousness itself so i would like I would like to get into that because yeah. I think that that and that seems like what you were telling me. It seems like it, it it's the kind of uh, framework that you would expect people to derive if they're performing gestalt therapy on themselves under the influence of LSD. Right, right. So it turns out that uh, if we go back to 19th century psychophysics, they had a term called vexir versuken, which literally translated means ghost stimulus. And it turns out that if you um, measure perception, that 50% of the time people will see and hear things that aren't there. The brain works through a series of filters mostly. And so our perception of what we call reality is at least half constructed by what we expect, what we imagine, and what we pretend. In fact, it's really hard to teach people new things because most of the time they're trying to match new things to their old models of what should have been what was in the past. So our skill model of hypnosis teaches people to harness what we call goal imagination which is a strategy for if you want to feel no pain for example if you imagine that the seven pain gates in your back that they're like switches or they could be like uh, toggles or they could be like rheostats or they could be like a computer that you adjust the level of when you do things like that with your imagination strategies, it turns out the body responds in amazingly direct ways. And uh, er, uh, my other teacher, Dr. Milton Erickson, used to say, you don't have to have a headache in your head. You can have it in your thumb or your little toe or somewhere else in your body. So you, you learn that your experience, uh, your somatic experience in your body can be quite powerfully affected by what you think and imagine about your experience. So uh, I made up a list of 50 hypnotic skills that I gave you a copy of. Yeah, I got it. And uh, it's kind of based on a martial arts model of hypnosis that's really based on attention. Attention is the main thing we learned to help people develop and not in the sense of don't think of a pink elephant in the corner of the room, but attention more in the sense that if you want to remember something or have a different experience, you create a series of fantasies and images that would help you make that a priority for the construction that your brain's doing to create reality. And so you can use this to turn down pain, 
you can some of the most interesting experiments were with pleasure we did reverse biofeedback where we conditioned people to not habituate to pleasure levels that were useful and people had had to leave the room because they got too excited just imagining these things. <laughs> Dude, this is this sounds a lot like Wim Hof, you know, like the Iceman and how he's been going in and having clinicians observe his ability to train people into a state where they have control over their body's immune response. And so they're able to inject his students with pathogens that they won't actually like boil a fever in response to this virus that they ordinarily would. And his his thing involved heavily a uh, kind of a pranayama, like breath control uh-huh. yeah. deal and an, att- an attentional control that, you know, he talks about. For him, he found it in the cold because... It was cold enough to shock him into not thinking, mm-hmm. but that there was... So it doesn't surprise me yeah. that this kind of stuff is possible, but, like, this yeah. list moves, like, very far beyond that kind of, like, you know, regulation of the individual body in the way that we would ordinarily think of it in this sort of historical mm-hmm. moment to stuff like, number one on this list, instant time travel, past, present, and future, multiple timeline, yeah. realities possible, like in string theory or in quantum physics. Okay, so... We started this conversation with you saying that most of these people's UFO regression artwork was different enough to so as not to suggest any kind of like onological reality to mm-hmm. their their stories. But do you feel like you've had compelling uh, evidence that what you're actually experiencing under these state, like in this state, is time travel. Well, a lot of people are interested in like previous life regressions mm-hmm. or uh, spectacular effects from hypnosis. It's not too hard at all to have you remember your birth experiences if you use Groff breathing or hyperventilation or who your teachers were in first or second grade or your third year old birthday party and who were there it becomes problematic when we go beyond six months old or beyond back before birth because there's no way to verify these experiences most people expect that if they're regressed they'll discover you know they were some celebrity in a previous life or had some kind of um amazing experience which explains everything in their current life and that's usually not the case (laughs) and 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 there's no way to verify it so i prefer to treat previous life stuff as a useful imagination so if it would help you in this life to imagine that you were prince in a previous life go for it why not (laughs) now i have had several cases which were very spooky of people who I was treating for depression and other things with hypnosis who ended up remembering concentration camp memories and speaking in German when they didn't know German and mentioning cities that they had never been to and places they didn't know about and who didn't read books about the Holocaust. And these were pretty spooky because they really did seem like spontaneous previous life memories. So could be it's interesting that you bring that up because uh something that came up for me in an lsd trip in 2007 was that i had this i don't know what you call it like a reckoning or a knowing that 
the organization of time. And later, it's funny because I, I found out that something like, I don't know, just a few years ago, high-level physicists published a paper suggesting this very thing, um, that space and time are virtually organized according to the resonance between different quantum states. So it's like the four-dimensional block universe, you know, like we're moment to moment. It's actually not the same three-dimensional object, you know, so that our memory is actually about resonance between two different bodies that remember each other as aligned along a past, present, future axis because of like an asymmetry in the the entropy or whatever of the situation, but that it's all sort of concurrent and that that's how past life stuff works. That it's not that, that that's why multiple people can have a resonance with the same historical figure, you know, because, or, or it's not a linear process, you know? Sure. And, and, and it's based on spirals and fractals. <laughs> And say more about say more about fractals, please. Yeah, fra- <laughs> fractals are, are are most interesting. Uh, in Albuquerque, we have a wonderful happening the first Friday of every month called First Friday Fractal Show, run by Dr. Jonathan Wolf, who's a neurobiologist, neuroscientist, man, mathematician, and artist. And he shows these fractal zoom movies. He makes at the Sandia National Laboratory on the third fastest computer in the world and uh, actually helped Jonathan get his first fast laptop to make these and he's taken off like a rocket since then and on the Sandia supercomputer he makes these fractal zooms which are like being in a rocket ship that's diving into inner space so he's taking uh the last show I went to, he was showing fractals that were deeper than the um, the amount of atoms in the universe. That level of of uh, geometric uh, progression inwards into the fractal expansion. Yeah, I was at that show. That was the yeah. yeah after all those years of just hearing about it, yeah. like it was. And some of you listening have probably seen this. Depending on how far in the future you are. You, you may actually be able to draw this kind of thing up in your sensorium, you know, just by willing it so. But, like, the, this notion of a fractal zoom that's deeper than the observable universe <laughs> that we're simulating, um, it's just cute. It's a mathematical model, of course, but, mm. it, but it works. And one of the things I noticed for years of going to Jonathan's shows is that before the show, people would be anxious and a little bit hostile and didn't talk to people standing next to them. And after the show, everyone was in this state of euphoria. People were happy. Old people were talking to kids. Kids were talking to strangers. There was this general sense of well-being. And so I ran this concept by Jonathan of fractal healing, uh, which is that uh, people like nature because it's natural right and it's free and it's out there maybe that's all true but the other reason people love nature is because it's the largest fractal in our experience so people like going to seashores and mountains and other places that have fractal landscapes because your brain loves fractals and your brain's organized on fractals and when people do psychedelics they see fractals 
In fact, a lot of ancient mystical art from the Middle East and Islam and uh, um, other traditions of mystical art, it's all fractal-based. It has a fractal resolution to it. So I started showing Jonathan Wolf's fractal movies to my patients, and they really liked them, and I, I think it was a really important part of treating depression to reorganize your brain by reconnecting to the fractal harmony that's in the world. I think about that with, um, you know, as a communicator working for SFI, it's it's funny now, every time I bring up my day job on the podcast, it's like strange. But at any rate, um, part of my goal working there is to help them organize communication in such a way as to uh, serve a, a more of a fractal structure to like organize it, you know, as a scale free network so that we have, you know, like the, like the way that the, the different media is just sort of organize or prefer senses in a different ways. So, you know, it's like books are like largely a private reading experience, the conversation, you know, people can listen to podcasts while they're on the train, you know, like keeping visual awareness of their environment. Anyway, um, there is, you know, it makes sense when you think like how every brainwave is, I guess, basically a harmonic of the next brainwave. You know, when we talk about alpha, beta, gamma, theta, delta brainwaves, not in that order that they, that the harmonic electromagnetic, like physical structure of the brain itself is both itself fractal and like contiguous with electromagnetic patterns in the environment. So that is just like a crooked way of coming back around to um, the, your model of consciousness and the, the notion like the, the, I wanted to hear you talk more about the difference between like seeing hypnosis as like a, yeah. a, a sleeping state or like an awakening well, thing. Well, Stan Groff at Esalen explained to me once, he said, to, to believe that your mind exists in your brain is like believing your TV show lives in your TV. Okay. <laughs> so, and Stan's model of consciousness was a pyramid, and one side of the equilateral pyramid is your brain and you as an individual. The second part is your community, your context. And the third part is the collective consciousness, which you could call God, or you could call collective consciousness, or you could call the general field of consciousness. So when you have all three of those present, your individual identity, your connection to a community, and your connection to cosmic consciousness then something magical happens and you get downloads of information. We call, you know, this was often happens in meditation, in prayer, in psychedelic trips. Insights and information just flows through you in the new hot paradigm right now is the flow state. The flow state is that creative state in which you're just producing uh, things or concepts and uh, it often happens under extreme adrenaline conditions, but it can happen when you're extremely relaxed or in nature or on psychedelics. But in the flow state, you get that, that triangle of connection between cosmic consciousness and your context and your individual self. 
The best lecture I ever went to in psychology was by James Hillman, who was a Jungian analyst, and it was called 100 Years of Psychotherapy and the World is Getting Worse. It was the only <laughs> lecture I've ever seen where 300 psychologists stood up and gave him a standing ovation. And his theory was basically that individual psychotherapy is not only not effective, it's wrong, and it disconnects people from their community. Mm. And he said that the biggest mistake in Western civilization was when Descartes said, cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And what he should have said was, convivo ergo sum, I celebrate (laughs) in community, therefore I am. And I think this leads into the whole movement of conscious festivals that's happening more and more these days where festivals are focusing on yoga education and connection of people and creating states of positive consciousness rather than just being parties. And that's where I like to lecture and do workshop at festivals because we can, and I run my own festivals at our our own ranch, which is called Three Sided Hole. Three, the number three, and then sided hole, like the whole thing. Three Sided Hole dot com is our website, and we're also <laughs> on Facebook. And um, we can present this kind of stuff we've been talking about here um, to anywhere from, you know, fifty to 300 people at our ranch and big festivals can do this with 1,500, 2,000 people or more. But the idea is that people people celebrating in community are open to downloads of new information. And it's a prime condition under which people can really change their life in positive ways. Mm. Yeah, so I want to hear more about applying this kind of framework to group work, you know, principally, because it seems, you know, among other things, it does seem like the workshop is kind of the future of education, you know, or maybe it was always that way. Maybe it was always well, the most here, here, form. Here's the question I ask when I do these workshops. It's, it's, um, and I'm going to go into a little model of hypnosis here. Most people's old models of hypnosis was you weren't hypnotized and then you went to see somebody or you went to the state fair and there was a stage hypnosis and then you got hypnotized and then you behaved in strange ways and you could do things you couldn't do before like you know quack like a chicken or uh, dance with a broom. Um, and that's all entertainment. It has really very little to do with hypnosis. But our model of hypnosis is exactly the reverse of that. Our model of hypnosis is that we are all constantly in a nested hierarchy of trance states. Um, there's a magic number in cognitive psychology, seven or plus or minus two. And in other words, there's five to nine channels of information that you can process at once with your conscious mind, which is a very limited amount of attention span, really. However, your unconscious mind, which Dr. Erickson used to point out, had 30,000 channels of information. So, like, what's your pancreas saying to your liver while your lung's talking to your ear? Where is all that information? How does that get processed? And how can you connect with your biological communication network that's so much more extensive and sophisticated than your conscious mind? So 
this is where meditation and learning to tune out your conscious mind helps you to allow this information from the cosmic consciousness and also your profound biological consciousness to come together and give you wisdom or intuitive insights or a sense of uh, empathy or uh, intuition about what to do or what to do next. The uh, conscious mind is really gets in the way of most people trying to figure it out, trying to work harder, uh, really um, is counterproductive to creativity. So where you take this is very clearly at a place where Western psychology meets uh, like indigenous medicine traditions. You know, I'll be sensitive to the term shamanism, even though I know that it's like, really a a pretty comfortable term for a lot of people. But so it seems like the right place to reopen asking you about Milton Erickson and your time with him and your impressions of him. And for people who don't know who he is, like, let's just start there. Well, Milton Erickson, MD, was a psychiatrist who um, was very uh, radical in his uses of hypnosis, so radical that he actually was asked to leave several major hospitals in the East Coast, um, even though he was doing very powerful, successful work. And he ended up in Phoenix, where he taught for many years privately, and he started the American Journal of Clinical Hypnosis and was one of their major editors. And I had the good fortune to be invited by him to come and spend some time with him and discuss my theories. We were using his methods as well as psychedelic methods to train people to be better responsive to hypnosis, and he was really interested in that. So I would go down to Phoenix and have long discussions, both in small training groups of about 10 people, and then he would invite me in to spend some some private time with him and discuss these at an advanced level. And this is around what year? Um, 1980, yeah. 1982, something like that. Um, and then the uh, the Erickson Foundation became very successful after he died. They, they uh, hold um, huge conferences of 10,000 therapists in Phoenix and on the West Coast to try to integrate many different therapies into common approaches to therapy. And they're very good. I have a lot of respect for what Dr. Jeff Zeig does there and his staff. But Erickson was an expert on the unconscious mind. He had some amazing... Um, he published a book, well, actually it was written by Jay Haley, one of his advanced students, called Uncommon Therapy. And I accidentally ran across that book in the library the day it was published, came out. I couldn't believe it. It was like reading like Alice in Wonderland of psychotherapy. So um, I actually called him and asked him if I could come and discuss his book. And that's when he learned about my research and invited me. And I asked to see. I asked him if I could see some of the notes on his patients because I didn't believe they actually existed. The stories were just <laughs> too incredible. But they. He showed me the notes. They were real people. I mean, without betraying their confidentiality, um, they were real people in real cases. And so, what what about these cases was hard for you to believe? Um, I'll uh, I'll give you an example. Um, 
one day I went outside my office. We started the second Erickson Institute in the world with Dr. Erickson. There's about 200 now, but only three were started with Dr. Erickson. And so with his backup and encouragement, we had an actual Erickson Institute in Albuquerque with a big Erickson Institute sign outside. One day I come out and there's a man leaning against the sign. Where's Dr. Erickson? And I said, you're looking for Milton Erickson? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm sorry to tell you he died a couple of years ago. And he starts having a temper tantrum. Like, that son of a bitch, what am I going to do now? I said, well, <laughs> come on in and tell me a have a cup of coffee, tell me your story. So this is a story he told me. So he was the uh, principal um, cellist in uh, an East Coast symphony, and he started developing a tremor, and uh, he couldn't uh, play the cello very good anymore. So he went to see doc. No, none of the doctors could help him. They told him to go to Phoenix and see Doctor Erickson. So he said, "I went." So I went to Phoenix. I saw Doctor Erickson. On the way home, I knew I had to move to Dallas, Texas. I said, well, slow down. What, what, what did you talk about with Dr. Erickson? He said, I, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. He said, every day we talked for two hours. He just like told me stories and um, asked me questions and made me laugh. But on the way home on the plane, I knew I needed to move to Dallas, Texas. And uh, I, was, I, I wasn't able to play my cello anymore but I liked it there but I was unhappy so I went back to see Dr. Erickson and on the way home I decided to go into the oil business I said slow down what happened in those sessions <laughs> that made you go into the oil business he said, I don't know he just we just talked and had a good time and, uh, uh, and uh and so this this went on for about five or six episodes of C. Erickson where he struck it rich, he got married, he went to see Erickson on the way home, he started thinking, I married the wrong woman. <laughs> he, he went home and got a divorce, got a new wife, and then the oil business went bust. And that's when he showed up in Albuquerque and uh, I found him leaning on my sign. So I asked him if he wanted to have a hypnosis session on the house for the, for old time's sake. He said, yeah. And I said, he said, but where's Dr. Erickson going to be? And I said, I'll have you imagine you're talking to him. Yeah. So I hypnotized him and have him, had him have a session with Dr. Erickson. And um, <laughs> so when it was over, I couldn't help it. So I said, what did he tell you? And his answer was classic. He said, I don't know, I'll find out on the way home. <laughs> and then he, he sent me a check for my fees and was totally happy with the experience, and I never found out what Dr. Erickson told him. Wow. wow. So that's how the unconscious mind works. In other words, the therapist doesn't tell you what to do, although they might suggest strategies or things you might read or tell you stories about people who've coped with similar problems, but they create the conditions under which you can download the information and something comes to you that's, that's inspirational and, and motivational. You, you told me a story once that I think really gets to the heart of Erickson as a shaman, as somebody, or as like, or as like a wizard, somebody that can like intervene in really potent, but like subtle ways in people's lives. It was about, stop me if I'm messing this up. It was, it was about a, uh, 
like you were at a dinner party with him or it was a, a, an account of a dinner party where he you, he met a, like a junkie and changed the guy's life. Do you do you know what I'm talking about? Um, not exactly. He suggest, he su- I think the story goes he suggested that the guy become a helicopter pilot. But he oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually him. my roommate in college. Um, I took him to see Dr. Erickson because uh, he was a cocaine addict. Okay. And he couldn't stop. And I, Erickson started telling stories about how some people found that if they get way high up in the air and can get perspective on things, they don't need to have uh, annoying little habits which would annoy them from actually living up to their potential. And Erickson, while he's telling these stories to all of us, was looked this guy right in the eye without telling him these stories were for him and uh, i i i was amazed that when we got back to chicago this guy went back to ohio dropped out of school enlisted in the military became a helicopter pilot and overcame all of his addictions (laughs) so wait that was had you introduced him at that point the two of them did he know did he understand the guy's condition? No, no. He was very psychic. I mean, he was, you know, Erickson was described as a shaman working as a psychiatrist. He loved, uh, and that was part of hypnosis. He loved to play around with time and space and identity. So explain the difference between that and NLP for people, because I think that this is like well, a really potent... Yeah, I asked Erickson about NLP once, and, uh, you know, er- he just uh, laughed and winked at me and said, just words. Um, and what he meant by that was N- NLP was founded by Bandler and Grinder, who, stu- who were psycholinguists, who studied the pattern of words that Erickson knew, as well as Virginia Satir, the world's best family therapist. And they mastered the patterns of word magic that you could use to change people's realities and it was kind of a watered down Ericksonian hypnosis but Erickson didn't think it had soul he didn't think that they were ethical he didn't think that they respected people's unconscious minds and he didn't like what they did with the learnings that he uh, allowed them to witness by studying him NLP is like a like a precursor to Cambridge Analytica and like social control via yeah like, it became very the manipulative. dream engine it became very manipulative because a lot of the people trained in NLP were not trained in psychotherapy or medicine or anything <laughs> that respected human boundaries or the soul and there's a lot of good NLP people out there and it's a very powerful technology but it has to be combined with empathy and compassion and listening and serving the person not serving selling them a new car yeah so you know back to this inside out model for hypnosis which by the way this whole conversation i've been thinking how funny it is since you brought up the history of the term uh, that for it to be described as an osis at all is like a medical condition. It's like not, it's it's thought of as abnormal, you know, disordered. 
like halitosis or yeah yeah but like when i was teaching the sobriety or like facilitating the sobriety conversations at festivals in 2014 as part of the the conditions of my interstate travel permit for williamson county i uh i had this whole thing that was like i think based really on this model of yours which is like that you can't be sober truly because we're all made out of psychoactive chemicals. Like that's the whole material footprint of this, but you can integrate more and more of the channels of your sensory availability or like cognitive faculty that like there, there's, there's so much more for us to extend into and become uh, more and more available to. Well, Gurdjieff, the famous Russian mystic, had a um, uh, a meditation that was very powerful. It went like this: It was uh, at any point in time, you ask yourself, "What am I paying attention to now?" And he called it self-remembering. And the hypnotic version of that is: At any point in time, ask yourself this question: If I had been hypnotized to be doing what I'm doing right now and having this experience, what would I have been told? <laughs> so, oh, hold on, that's very so, Westworld. You know, so here we are uh, doing this interview. Um, <laughs> we're in an interview trance, you could say, or a sharing information trance. But it's also a Friday, and you're away from home in Santa Fe, and uh, there's many nested layers of trances. So you're also a man, and you're in America. So wait, do you do you equate like story with trance in the sense that when people are talking about everything, story, story? yeah, 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 that's good. That's a good analogy. So when you go to a movie, you suspend your reality testing in order to allow the movie to have a pretend quality erickson used to tell his patients pretend and pretend you're not pretending so if you want to develop confidence you pretend you could be confident and then you pretend that you are confident and can do the things you want to accomplish so at any one time you're in a series of trances and you get to choose which ones come out which take the gestalt, the foreground or the background. So if you want to study, if you want to read a book, how do you get yourself to put yourself in a reading trance, for example? Do you have a, you know, a thinking cap you put on or a particular chair or do you, hmm. you know, do you have to have a cup of tea? I mean, there's a, you know, there's lots and lots of behavioral methods for triggering sequences of making behaviors likely or, or not likely like that but most of the problems people come to psychotherapists for is because they're stuck in trances they're stuck in a trance state like i could never get a better job i could never finish school or i'm I'm scared of flying or um, (laughs) um and that that's part of it is part of that waking up process is learning to that you can choose the trance you want to be in and you oh, it's a wonderful experience now what kind of trances are possible well it turns out there's some optimum trances that are more useful to human beings than other trances <laughs> the flow state in which you have a a streaming of download of information 
um, in a non-judgmental meditative type state, even if you're running or dropping out of a plane or something, is a very useful trance. And you, in that trance, you have to forget to be afraid. Because if you let your adrenaline take over, you won't have that experience. The other thing we're, we've been doing is integrating hypnosis with psychophysiology. I said earlier there's no particular brain state or chemical reaction for hypnosis states. However, there is a master breathing sequence that most people don't know about, which is that the master gas that regulates metabolism is not oxygen, it's carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is the master gas that controls many, many functions in your brain and body. And in the West, most people breathe too much. So when they get anxious, they start hyperventilating. And then they they bring in too much oxygen, which actually creates a paradoxical effect of suppressing the oxygen because it suppresses the carbon dioxide. And, and so the blood levels of carbon dioxide, oxygen, get all messed up. So it turns out, you know what the best way to regulate this is? turns out it's laughing. So if you do laughter yoga, which involves alternating a series of two breaths and three breaths, you automatically adjust your carbon dioxide oxygen levels. And you can t- I've worked with like political groups who are so wound up they look like they were going to explode. And in 3 minutes of doing laughter yoga, they instantly relaxed, had a smile on their face and were amazed at how good they felt and all the or most of the tension drained from their bodies very fast and uh, in India there's over 20,000 laughter clubs that meet in the parks every uh, every uh, weekend Mm. they're free clubs and it's not about telling jokes or or uh, making people laugh it's all about the breathing and it turns out the basic laughter yoga pattern which is ho ho ha-ha-ha, ho-ho, ha-ha-ha, ha, changes your oxygen-carbon dioxide level and equalizes it. And I actually documented this at my friend Dr. Peter Litchfield has, runs Breathing University in Santa Fe, which is an advanced breathing scientifically-based school. Hmm. And uh, on his uh, uh, advanced scientific equipment, we were able to show that this definitely happens when you do laughter yoga so some of the techniques for changing the physiology of the brain and body uh, don't have to be real complicated or torturesome they're about having play and fun and laughing and that's what a lot has dropped out of our society people forgot have to have fun I was teaching in China about five or six years ago and our students in China were young entrepreneurs who were all very wealthy. They were like 30-year-olds who were all millionaires and uh, from opening like auto body shop chains and stuff like that. And they had grown up under Chairman Mao, and they didn't know how to play or relax. And of all the things we did teaching them hypnosis and behavioral medicine, laughter yoga was the thing that totally changed their lives. 
They would want to do what we came in. They would want to do it before we left. <laughs> <laughs> they would get really rowdy. That's funny. Uh, you know, that that reminds me of uh, this video that Nikki and I found last night that we were, was, we were both cracking up over, which was parents who have a, a, an identical twin fucking with their babies so that the baby doesn't know who's the dad and who's the uncle or who's the aunt and who's the oh, no. mother. And it was hilarious. And the kids were, in general, of a good humor about it. Like, they were visibly confused in a funny way, but, like, generally okay. But there was this, this one uh, little Asian kid that was just saw his dad and his uncle, you know, like, met his identical uncle. And you just see it, like... This kid just got twisted and and uh, started to cry. And I was like, oh, God. You know, just the, the thought of, like, being that small. You know, I'm, I'm having these thoughts now. Like, But when we're having these thoughts of the fractal nature of consciousness and, like, growing into wider and more inclusive identities, but, like, starting at the very basic level, like, you're a baby and you're just, like, sort of figuring out what is persistent and what isn't and what is yours and what is not. And like, I don't know. I don't know why I brought that up other than it was fucking hilarious, uh, to, uh, see that. I guess I'm now I'm going to have to link that in the show notes, but that's, yeah. a, that, that's certainly a strange, uh, humor. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, uh but I, I did want to mention yeah. in terms of fractal selves, um, <laughs> I was actually the first subject in a public demonstration of something called ego state hypnosis, which was really interesting. It turns out that most people have between 8 and 21 personalities. Okay. And and the real, you know, clinical multiple personalities are actually very rare, and that's defined by a person who doesn't know what the other personalities are doing. So, you know, like if you... If you robbed a bank and said, uh, uh, I have no memory of it, it must be another part of me, then maybe you were multiple personality. But we actually had an attorney refer us, somebody who did rob a bank and tried to claim they were multiple personality, and he was found guilty because it turned out all the personalities knew about the robbery all cooperate. <laughs> Well, you were on the call when we did the 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 Blindsight book club call uh-huh. for for this show, and you know they have that character in in the book who has severed herself on purpose into like f- four different people. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, like in a lot of ways, like I really, I especially enjoyed reading that book with you in the conversation because of all of the work that you've done on hypnosis like you know I'm, i haven't i'd have to look over this list but the oh. bl- the black built hypnosis skills partial list here that i have i'm sure one of them is like multi-ball mode right mm-hmm. like where you you know you need you need to run three cores in in parallel well, well here's the thing you so if each person has between 8 and 21 personalities so it turns out what therapy does for people is create more effective alliances between the different personalities. The bottom line is we don't do psychosurgery. We're not going to get rid of any part of you. So mm. the, if you want to get studying done, the part of you that wants to sit still, that likes to read, the part of you that wants to tune out the outside world, they all have to cooperate to create enough of an agreement to let you study. 
And so when you want to get stuff done, you have to literally have negotiation sessions between the different parts of yourself to uh, make an agreement that those parts will be stronger than the other parts of you that might have other agendas or might want you to go out drinking or bowling or do something else (laughs) instead. And uh, this is a very effective way of working with professionals who can't get stuff done. Like one client I had would go to his um, office and just do nothing, sit at his desk for three hours, not get anything done. They threatened to fire him. And when we did a parts analysis of his personalities, it turned out there was a really rebellious kid who resented having to go to work. And so the solution was we let him have a party in his office for 20 minutes before he had to work like by eating popcorn and blowing up balloons and uh, he became so successful he became a partner in his firm a state uh, supreme court judge and uh, was totally successful after that that's really something I want to get back to you brought up three-sided hole which for the record, that's like that. That is the the site of our meeting. You know, that is uh, where so many of our hangs over the last years have been. And that little, what is it, eight and a half acres mm-hmm. outside? You know, in the desert outside of Albuquerque, looking out fifty miles more. I don't know how many miles. Hundred actually. From yeah. the you know from the sort of promenade of uh-huh. this little thing. You know, I think I'd like to hear more about your involvement in the history of that place, and and how sure. like your understanding of your relationship to that place fits in with all of this other stuff about yeah. your life as a psychologist. Well, three three sided hole is our family ranch that's about thirty miles northwest of Albuquerque, and we've been a festival site for twelve years. We've been a Burning Man regional site. Um, and had 1,200 people there, and we saved the land from being sold off uh, when the owner decided to build his dream house in town instead of out there. And it's high desert. It's about 7,000 feet high, and it was developed as a like a community little village. There's roads that go to the top, and if you look down from the top at night, it looks like a little village, like you're... Uh, that's very well organized and three-sided hole people said what is a three-sided hole well (laughs) it's kind of mystical it's a there's this side there's that side and the other side (laughs) so it's kind of like that pyramid that that Groff talks about so the what is the other side the other side is when you're out at three-sided hole especially after one night out there you forget about your problems and you forget about the world because the the energy coming in off the desert is so powerful that you instantly become part of the landscape and the cosmic consciousness and you know we've had psychics out there who said they got whiplash from all the spirits <laughs> uh slapping them around going pay attention <laughs> and uh 
there's no neighbors within there's neighbors like ranch people five miles to the north but other than that there's nothing for 300 square miles to the west so you feel the winds come off the desert you see 30 different colors of rocks petrified forest rocks everywhere um and um the rocks out there really are like all it's just remarkable that it's just there's so many different colors and they're all reasonably small you know they're like river tumbled pieces i guess yeah they're actually yeah. were prehistoric rivers that went through there yeah and some of those rocks are volcanic rocks and we find fossils that were from the, the coasts from you know, bamboo and things like that that didn't grow in New Mexico. <laughs> that's yeah, so. that's really cool. But so Three Sided Hole is a community. We have about uh, three to four hundred artists, mystics, um, potential Nobel Prize laureates, um, artists, hippies, lawyers, doctors, and the things that unites us is we go out there and create a judgment-free zone where there's music and uh, campfires and storytelling and permission to be yourself and uh, the uh, festivals might range from a barbecue to a Burning Man regional uh, lots of musicians uh, traveling through town like to play at Three Sided Hole. We don't pay anyone to play there, so but we have major blues artists have come through and played there, and people who've been touring with Bob Dylan, and the talent that's played there is quite amazing. You had the uh, was it? They were Senegalese percussion. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of great African drummers who live in Albuquerque, and so we have some of the best drumming in the country out there. Sometimes the drumming goes all night. A shout out to my friend Nick Baker from high school who moved out here and is a drummer. Yeah, but, uh, I know Nick. Yeah, yeah. And then we have uh, we've had shamans from seven different countries come and visit us and do ceremonies. We have huge crystals that are buried all over the site that have been blessed by different shamans, and the whole uh, the whole site is like an energy lattice that helps you reconnect to your deeper self. And uh, we never know who's going to show up, and we we never make any money doing these events. <laughs> but um, just being out there changes people's lives. Yeah, it, it definitely has changed mine. It's a beautiful place. So I guess my question is, is Three-Sided Hole kind of like an extension of the clinical and psychiatric work? Because you've talked about your therapy work taking you into group work, and then like where has that taken you? So three-sided hole is an extension of my clinical work in that we try to present at a much larger scale concepts, experiences, and opportunities for people to connect with joy and happiness and laughter and music and being in a non-judgmental context for themselves and, and other people. We do have you know, 10 or 15 lectures as part of each event where noted authorities on meditation or psychedelics or the things we've been talking about in this podcast uh, spend an hour or more talking about new discoveries in consciousness, etc. 
But a lot of the action takes place around the bonfires late at night. There's people playing guitar and flutes and drums and discussing things like free will and uh, fate. And, <laughs> what of it? And, and uh, their earliest childhood memories. And I'm kind of an agent provocateur. I, I wander around and ask people impossible questions. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I might go around and say, well, when did you stop believing you had magical powers? Or uh, uh, tell us about your most ecstatic experience. And so, you know, there's a, a number of us who are kind of uh, therapists or personality artists who walk around causing trouble like that. <laughs> and at the end of the festival, we have, some people think it's the best thing, we have something called Cosmic Temple, which used to be called Hippie Church, but we made it into <laughs> a more uh, egalitarian experience in which we ask people to share how this uh, three days in the desert has changed them, what they've learned, and what they what they would like to learn that they didn't learn. And some amazing stories get told at those experiences. And like Burning Man, which I, I've been to a bunch of times, the real issue is what do people take home with them? It's not. We're hoping to create an experience that's not just a three-day uh, leave of absence from your job and your family and your responsibilities in the city, but we were hoping that people get a new perspective on life and themselves, encounter more parts of themselves that are playful and know how to enjoy themselves and connect and help other people and that's that's our goal so it's much more than just a party or a festival we have some clear intentions that are um in our philosophy statements and we're not trying to be sneaky about it we're very above board about it and our goal is to do what might take 10 sessions of psychotherapy or more in one weekend in a group of three or four hundred people instead of one at a time it's a black belt hypnosis skill number 60 is ability to stay open and curious skill 34 is ability to have too much fun yeah i'll tell you a story about that i was i was having coffee at midnight once with this guy robert who started the southwestern college of life sciences and he was a big biker guy and we were sitting at his uh, juice bar in his house because he didn't drink alcohol. And suddenly he fell off his chair and landed on the floor and started rolling over laughing. And I said, Robert, are you okay? What what happened? He goes, yeah, I'm okay, Blue. I just forgot to be afraid for a second. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, most people walk around in trance states in which they're hypervigilant, they're, they're you know, guarded they don't want to be made make a fool of themselves uh you know they're they're totally um contained and people get uncontained at three-sided hall they get released and have the ability to let remember what it was like to have a magical life and to make new friends and to to uh, have new experiences and, but the real question is how can they take that home with them what can they do so that they live like that on a regular basis and not just one or two weekends a year. In what way do you think, and maybe, maybe you can attribute it to this kind of community work 
or maybe it's through something else, but in what ways do you think that your model of consciousness and, and the cosmos and your sort of praxis in relation with it has changed over the last, I don't know, 50 years. Because it sounds like you were doing some pretty epic, sophisticated stuff at a very early point in your career, but you've obviously been through so much and learned a ton. So, like, what what do you see in the difference between the stuff that you had figured out early and the stuff that you're only well, now figuring out? There, there's a lot more kids out there who are interested in this stuff and want to learn about this stuff and not just go to rock festivals to have a big party. You know, I, went, I was in a Woodstock, but I was at the first major festival after Woodstock called the Goose Lake Rock Festival. And, you know, there were like 70,000 kids there. And uh, the main thing was to have a big party. And now a lot of the festivals aren't so much about the parties. They're about connecting with each other and sharing things and doing yoga and learning these kinds of skills and it's re- really refreshing to see people interested in that kind of consciousness sharing and skill sharing rather than just getting drunk or getting high and you know a lot of these a lot of the kids are very sincere it's not like a big game or trying to impress i mean there's some of that that goes on but a lot of it's all about being real and having experiences which expand your consciousness to make you a better person, more empathetic, more compassionate, more able to do the 50 things on the black belt hypnosis skills because they give you more uh, power in your own life and empower you to be healthier and smarter. And um, it's real exciting to see how how that develops. My friend Ron Lawrence, who was Timothy Leary's assistant, asked Timothy Leary once, so, Tim, what's enlightenment? And Tim said, lighten up. (laughs) (laughs) So, in a sense, that's been my path, too. I used to take this stuff real seriously. Like, we, we, we had to have a certain number of people there. We had to get this done. But I kind of just go with the flow now. It's like, uh... I'm lightening up a lot. It's like uh, whatever happens, happens, and we'll see who shows up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What about in terms of the models that you're using to understand the human mind and and consciousness? Like, how how have those changed for you? Well, it kind of goes back to a 15th century famous manuscript called The Cloud of Unknowing. (laughs) Oh, no shit! (laughs) Which, shit. Which is basically that... The less you think you know, the more you know. <laughs> so a lot of it's getting rid of stuff that I thought was true or that do kind of untrain myself from, you know, I had I had a formal psychoanalytic training at Harvard. Most of that turned out to be nonsense. <laughs> you know, most of behavior therapy is has limited usefulness. You know, everything we think we know is only partially true. So learning to unlearn you know as Jim Morrison said learn to forget learn to be innocent and open and non-judgmental and connect with your community connect with yourself through meditation and connect to your 
cosmic consciousness through either however you choose through prayer psychedelics um hiking in nature um many many ways to get there but um let yourself continuously reinvent yourself and rediscover who you are because you're more than any of those things are damn that's actually that feels like a good place to start tying a bow on it and frankly that may be the sort of the answer to this question but if you were to treat this as a time capsule to be absorbed by some unborn distant archaeologist what is your message to the presumably concurrent in four-dimensional block space-time future historians? Like, what what would you say to those? Convivo ergo sum. <laughs> Celebrate, therefore, I am. Ah, that's a fair place to end it. Thanks so much, All right. Dr. Blue. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to Future Fossils. This podcast is a part of the MindPod Network, along with numerous other excellent programs. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. If you'd like to help support Future Fossils, consider giving this show a five-star iTunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations. For more episodes, show notes, copious extras including music art the future fossils coloring book and book club and more visit patreon.com slash michael garfield <laughs>